Open your Bibles to Isaiah, and we're going to spend our time over uh, a significant portion of text tonight. Our main focus tonight will be on the 24th and 25th chapters of Isaiah. Uh, But to understand those chapters, we need to just sketch uh, chapters 13 to 22, as Isaiah has this singular prophecy that moves through and try to figure out all kinds of ways to... uh, consume this amount of information in one shot and so uh, I hope you got your nap and I hope you drank your coffee here we go we're gonna look at Isaiah this will be uh, I think a really neat picture of what uh, God is picturing for his people through the Messiah and that's been one of the great themes that we've observed so far in the study of this prophecy is Isaiah is certainly speaking of the current conditions of the nation But his answer to those conditions is about the future and what the Messiah is going to do, which then speaks to us in our day and time as what the people of God will look like, the blessings that we would inherit and enjoy. And Isaiah is going to do that again in this section. If you have your Bibles to Isaiah 13, we're just going to kind of scan. I want you to just kind of turn your pages with me as we kind of look over what we see God doing here through Isaiah uh, in these early chapters. You'll notice, and hopefully your Bible has some of these headers to to help you follow along, but you'll notice really from chapters 13 through 23 is God declaring his supremacy over all of the nations. And throughout this section, he's going to name nation after nation after nation who is deserving of God's judgment, deserving of God's wrath. Chapters 13 and 14 is the prophecy against Babylon. Now, As you're in the Wednesday class, the reason why that's really fascinating is because Babylon is not the world power. It's quite a shocking prophecy right here because Assyria is the world power. Assyria is the one that has now been prophesied by Isaiah to be the threat that's going to go all the way into Jerusalem. But here is a prophecy, not not that Babylon is going to overthrow Assyria, but that Babylon is going to be overthrown by the Medes, chapter 13. Verse 17, notice the Medes are identified. That didn't happen until 539 B.C. We're talking about 170 years out. Here is Isaiah projecting. Here's what's going to happen. The Medes are going to overthrow the Babylonians. Never mind the fact the Babylonians aren't even the boss right now. And so Isaiah is speaking about all of these nations and how God rules sovereignly over all of them. You notice then at the end of chapter 14, the prophecy against Assyria and then Philistia. Chapter 15 on into chapter 16 contains Moab. Chapter 17 describes the fall of Damascus. Chapter 18 is the land of Cush. Chapter 19 then talks about Egypt. And the prophecy about Egypt is somewhat interesting that we're going to look at for a minute. Is that notice in verse 19 some of the things that are described about what's going to happen in the future After these judgments of all these nations occur. Verse 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its borders. This is an amazing statement here. Is that here is this world nation. This heathen nation that has been a rebel against God and against God's people. And they're pictured as becoming God's people. In the very middle of Egypt, 
There's going to be altars and monuments to the Lord. Notice chapter, I mean, verse 20. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Notice how Egypt sounds like Israel during the days of the judges. They're going to have oppressors come along. And when they cry out to God, I'm going to send them a deliverer, a savior to be able to get them out of that. Well, that's the whole 350 years of the judges that was going on. So Egypt sounds like the very people of God who are worshiping God with their altars and their monuments. Verse 21. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Notice the picture Picture here is that now we have a description about how Egypt is going to become gods. In fact, look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be, a, be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my my people and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. So you have this fascinating description that God just says, you know what? There's a time when Egypt's going to be mine. Assyria is going to be mine. Israel is going to be mine. In fact, he describes a new exodus there in verse 22, where he describes, I'm going to strike Egypt. But this time they're going to return to the Lord rather than being stubborn mules like they were in the days of Moses when I struck the land and, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And refuse to turn to God. Here he says, I'm going to strike the land and this time they're going to return to me. And now notice the description. They're all worshiping God. There's a highway going from Egypt all the way to Assyria through Israel and back again. Dividing it into thirds. Israel, Egypt, Assyria, all equally worshiping God. And so what you are observing is God describing how his kingdom is going to cross all boundaries and all borders. This kingdom is going to be such that all peoples are going to come and worship him. They will be worshiping him. There will be altars to him. And God's going to have his people in all of the lands. And God is going to listen to their cries and pleas. And when they are struck, they're going to turn back to God. And so God in these chapters is describing these continual images as I'm going to judge the nations. But ultimately, there's going to be my people in those nations. You notice that keeps going on. Chapter 20 has Egypt and Cush. Chapter 21 describes Babylon. And then jump out to chapter 23 and notice this amazing description at the very end of the chapter. Isaiah 23, verse 18. This is speaking about the nation, the city of Tyre. The Sidonians, and it says there, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. So even Tyre is described that all of her wages, all of their merchandise is all going to be under the title holy to the Lord. God's going to rule over all of it. He's going to rule over every nation. 
And so what God is picturing is that I'm going to judge and make every nation submit that doesn't yield to me. I'm going to bring my crushing blows of judgment and wrath upon every single peoples and nation that does not obey, that does not submit to the will of God. Now turn back a page to chapter 22 and notice who's included in this mess. After naming all of these surrounding nations, and he names Egypt and Moab and Cush and Assyria, notice chapter 22 says, you know what, Jerusalem too. Even the quote-unquote holy people of God are not excluded from this worldwide judgment. Though Isaiah has prophesied that the Assyrian invasion will be survived, that they were going to come all the way up to the neck, we saw back in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Isaiah now prophesies and says, but the next invasion, that's not going to be the case. Jerusalem is going to fall. Judah is going to fall, just like all the other nations. Judgment is due to Jerusalem just as much. In fact, notice the chilling words of verse 14. Listen to this. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Here's Isaiah. The Lord of hosts has declared this. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. This is what true atonement looks like. Your sins will not be atoned for until you die. That is the righteous judgment and righteous requirement of God. You have sinned. The nation stands in rebellion against God. And here is the atonement that will be received from me. All of you will die. And that is a universal declaration of what ought to happen to everybody. This is the consequence of sin. And this is why Isaiah for 11 chapters lists city after city, nation after nation, no one excluded from the wrath of God. Everybody is going to receive the just punishment for their sins. That sets us up for what God is now going to describe where we want to spend our time tonight in chapter 24 and chapter 25. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Notice the main message. God is going to judge everybody equally. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. This is the just requirement of God. And he lists all kinds of different people here. doesn't matter if you're slave or master, people or priest, whoever you are, everybody is going to stand in judgment before God. And verse 1 becomes very fascinating because he describes here this emptying of the earth. And there's a phrase there, the scattering of the inhabitants. A phrase that is a reminder of what happened 
at the Tower of Babel. Again, because of pride, because of iniquity, God scatters the inhabitants there. Same word used here. Referring to that same kind of imagery. Judgment is going to come against the peoples. They are going to be scattered for their sins. Now watch this strange imagery about the earth in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for for their guilt." Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Notice this imagery of the earth is mourning. It is withering and writhing and wasting and languishing. In fact, notice that in verse 5 particularly, it says the earth is polluted. The earth is defiled. But carefully notice why the earth is described as being defiled and polluted. Notice it says, because of the inhabitants who walk on it. Because of the sinfulness of humanity, as he has listed nation after nation after nation, people after people, he says the earth is writhing and crying out because of this. And it's not because of the earth's problem, it is a problem of humanity because of their sins. And the earth then is being described as mourning in reaction to that. There is a curse that it is dealing with because it says, verse 5, the people have transgressed the laws, broken the statutes, broken the covenant. They have violated all of God's laws. Now, the reason why I think that is fascinating and where we're going with our, our study tonight is because we have New Testament language that speaks quite similarly where Paul all of a sudden in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8 started using the same kind of language. You remember in Romans chapter 5, the second half of that chapter, the Apostle Paul describes how everything in the earth changed when Adam sinned. Everything was changed. As sin enters into the world, the all of creation then is flipped over because of that. Chapter 8 pictures it a little bit more. And notice it's the same kind of speaking here. As the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I want to highlight what Paul is talking about here. He says, now I want us to observe something. He says, the present sufferings that we are going through as apostles, as Christians there in the first century, he says, it's not worth comparing the glory that's to come, he says. And now he brings in the creation with that. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. With eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God, for this glory that is going to come to the people of God. The creation is waiting longingly for that. Why? 
For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. Now, careful. Why is it going to be set free? What's what's happening from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God? Again, picturing redemption of God's people that's to occur one day. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I want to bring together Isaiah and Paul because I think what they are talking about is Isaiah is looking out into the future and now Paul is jumping on that same line of thought and begins talking about this. Isaiah pictures here the earth is groaning, writhing, languishing, and the reason why is because of the corruption of the people. All of the nations are sinning. All the peoples are full of sin. We could pull in Romans 3. There's not anybody who's righteous. Nobody is doing what is right. Everybody is deserving of wrath. Even to Isaiah's point of view, Jerusalem is worthy of of God's wrath. There is no one excluded. Paul comes along and pictures the earth, the creation, looking forward to something. And the thing that is interesting to notice is that it was looking forward to our redemption, to our glory being revealed. Therefore, it would no longer be languishing, no longer be ruined and defiled by our sinful actions. And here's what I want us to observe, because this is going to lead us into chapter 25. It's not a picture of the earth being redeemed. And I feel like as we go through Isaiah, I'm going to have to touch on this quite a few times because this is a a theology that's really growing right now. The idea that what heaven is, is not going to be with God, but this earth being turned back into Eden. And we then are going to participate in that in this heaven on earth as heaven and earth merge together into this renewed paradise. And what I want us to recognize is that's not what Paul is talking about when he brings up the earth. The reason why the earth is languishing and writhing and crying in Isaiah's time is not because, oh, poor earth, there's weeds, and we sure wish that wasn't the case. Just as much when we saw chapter 11 and chapter 9, we saw this language of of the, the lion lying down with the lamb. Well, God is not concerned about animals eating other animals. He made it that way. Go read Genesis when they get off the ark. That's not the point. The earth is being described as a metaphor crying out because the people, the inhabitants of the earth, are disobeying God. And the earth is looking forward to the day, not for its own redemption, but for the people to be redeemed. And that's what he pictures here. The focus is on our redemption. And that's why the Apostle Paul could use those words so eloquently there. In verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. The problem is sin. And the picture that Isaiah is giving is I want you to recognize the wreckage of sin 
and the worthiness of our judgment. And the earth here in Paul's day, he writes, is longing for a time when God is going to redeem us. And we'll see how that works with chapter 25 in just a minute. Come back to Isaiah 24. We've got to finish the paragraph where we bring in 25 and bring this all full circle. Verses 7 through 13 continues this imagery of devastation. I want to highlight to you verse 10. Verse 10, we're going to notice from verse 7 to verse 13, here is the results now of God's judgment moving through the earth. He describes in verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. There is a picture here of the wasted city here in verse 10. This is going to be a central contrast to what Isaiah wants us to learn. The wasted city represents essentially all that is earthly. It represents the essence of humanity, all the wickedness that we've studied throughout the book of Isaiah and the worthiness of judgment from chapter 13 to to chapter 23. Here is all of this sinfulness, wasted potential and how they should have been obedient to God, how the nations and the people should have been serving God. But since that did not happen, devastation has come. Corruption has come. Pollution, defilement has come due to the people's sins. Now, here's what is interesting. Watch this little glimmer of hope in verse 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Here is this hope of, but there's going to be a time when all the earth is going to praise God and give him the glory that he deserves. This is the way it is supposed to be. All of creation, every human giving God the glory. But before that can happen, notice how Isaiah refers right back in the middle of 16 and says, But I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. From the glimmer of hope it turns and says, There is nobody who is going to avoid this judgment. Verse 17, terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. I love images like that. God, you're not going to escape. You think you're running away and you run right into the, into the pit. And then you try to climb out of the pit and you fall into the snare. Nobody's avoiding the judgment of God. Everybody's being judged for their sins here, Isaiah says. Nobody is being excluded. In fact, it is a global picture at the end of verse 18. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. This is language from Noah's flood. The windows of heaven opened in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11. Trying to picture... That the destroying of the nations is the coming of the rule of God. 
God is coming in judgment. All peoples are worthy of His wrath. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy on it and it falls. It will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. And they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. And they will be shut up in a prison. And after many days they'll be punished. And the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And His glory will be before His elders. Notice this imagery of judgment. And it is a picturing of the glory of God that comes from that judgment as everyone stands before God and receives that. An imagery of God reigning gloriously. Now, this language, as I read it, shouldn't be too unnerving for us because I want you to think about how many passages describe that this is exactly what the Christ is going to do. I'll read for you of all those Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make your nations, the nations, your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Listen to verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the rule of the Messiah. The nations must be shattered. Judgment is going to come at the hand of the Messiah when he arrives. There is doom and judgment. And so to take a pause for a moment, here stands Isaiah. He's prophesying about what is going on in the world. And he goes from Babylon all the way through Tyre, Jerusalem, Assyria, everybody. And he pictures the worthiness of every single person to be judged. Everybody stands under wrath. The atonement that ought to be received is our death. And Christ, the Messiah, is going to accomplish this Isaiah's picturing because he is going to shatter the nations. And so watch out all peoples who do not bend the knee before the Lord. Now, Let's roll in verse 25, and I hope this will then make it all tie together in a nice, neat bow, because watch what he does here. This is where all these chapter breaks interfere. This is one big, long thought that Isaiah is just trucking through of imagery, because chapter 25 now pictures a hope. Here's what's going to happen with this Messiah who crushes the nations because of their sins, and he brings in the judgment, and he wrecks all the world because of this. Chapter 25. Verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. The cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. 
wall like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Notice now there is this erupting of praise, a picture of a personal knowledge of God in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you're my God. In the midst of describing just utter chaos and devastation of the earth, nation after nation, and all the earth is rising and polluted and defiled by sins, he now pulls out of this and goes, Lord, you're my God, and I exalt you, and I praise your name. And you read that and you go, now that just seems way out of place. I'm looking for a lament right here, like, woe is us. It's the end of us. We're all done for. It's the end. But instead he pulls out of that and says, I want you to recognize what's going to happen as these things take place. He says in verse 1, I'm going to praise you for the wonderful things that you've done. He describes these events as the wonderful things that God has done. These world judgments as the wonderful things of God. You see it there in verse 2. You made the city a heap. We read about that wasted city. We highlighted it in the last chapter. The wasted cities become a heap. The foreigner's palace is devastated. Verse 3. Strong peoples are now going to glorify you. People are going to see the wonderful deeds of God. Recognize His power. Forgo their strength and trust in themselves and recognize that satisfaction can only be found in the Lord. That's how Isaiah turns on this. All of this doom and judgment is to cause people to turn their hearts to God. It's to cause people to recognize the power and the might of God. And what he's going to display now are two great results that come from the fact that the Messiah is shattering the nations and ruling over the earth. Number one is in verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. This mountain imagery we've seen a couple of times in Isaiah already. It represents the kingdom of God. In fact, remember that imagery in Daniel chapter 2. As we see this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has where there is this stone that shatters this statue. So the statue representing all of the nations of the earth, Babylon all the way down to Rome. And at the shattering of the nations, that stone becomes a mountain that grows up to the Lord. Here is this mountain imagery again, representing the power of the kingdom of God. And here's what he says is going to happen. He says, when that mountain comes, he says, listen to what's going to happen. There's going to be this banquet, this feasting that's going to occur for all the peoples. Now, I want you to get a feel of how shocking that sounds. We've just seen the wrath of God unleashing against all of the nations. And then he turns and says, but here's what God is going to do for the people. What he is going to do, he's going to offer them something amazing. He's going to offer them a feast and listen to the kinds of things that they're going to enjoy. Verse six, a feast of rich food, well-aged wine, full of Fat and marrow, well-refined, aged wine. 
Notice this is not a picture of what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a feast and everybody's going to have bread and water in this kingdom. There you go. Yeah. Bread and water, peanut butter and jelly. Woo. He's describing something immense. Listen to what is available to you in the kingdom. This richness that exists. You can have your hunger and thirst quenched and satisfied, not with just bread and water, rich, fine-tasting foods and well-aged wine is all being offered in this glorious kingdom. Think about with me how often Jesus liked that kind of parable talk. He talked about these feasts that were going to come with his kingdom. He'd always use this imagery of those who were invited and rejecting the wedding feast. It's all coming off of this kind of Isaiah and other prophets speaking of these kinds of things. Now think about the contrast of what's just happened. In chapter 24, we have seen with Isaiah, he has pictured the wasted city. Wreckage, judgment, emptiness, lack of satisfaction. He says the vine fails, there's no wine, there's no food, there's no nothing. However, those who are on the mountain of the Lord, they're just feasting and banqueting. They're drinking and eating and everything is going well and they are fully satisfied. And Isaiah is drawing this contrast as he's pictured there is certainty of judgment for sins. So which city do you want to belong to? Do you want to belong to the wasted city where there is certainty of devastation, certainty of lack of satisfaction? You're not going to get what you need. Or would you rather be on the mountain of the Lord where there is feasting and well-aged wine? He says, now, which way do you want to go? Do you want to be part of the wasted city of the earth and looking for your satisfaction in the ways of the world, in the ways of sin, and engage in all of that iniquity and sinfulness only to find judgment before God and a total lack of satisfaction? It's not going to give you what you think. But to those who come to the mountain of the Lord, ah, true feasting. True satisfaction, your hunger and your thirst are met as God offers you all that you need. Image number one he gives of this great blessing when the Messiah comes. You can feast with him and enjoy all that there is in the great kingdom of God. Or you can go seek after the ways of the world, but understand the decree of the nations has already been made. The Messiah sits on the throne to crush the nations ruling with a rod of iron. And there is no one who will avoid it. To put your hope and trust in the ways of the world, in the nations, in living for self, in living for the things of this life, for living for the physical, is emptiness every time and a guarantee of God's wrath in the end. So he sets up the first obvious picture. I'd rather be feasting and drinking with God than in the wasted city where there is absolutely nothing. And so he pulls this into spiritual terms. Look at what God is trying to offer those who will come to the kingdom, to the mountain of God. The second image is in verse 7, the second glorious promise. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples. There's a covering over the peoples, but those who are on the mountain, that 
that covering is going to be swallowed up. What is it? Verse 7. The veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. First promise. Richness and satisfaction in the kingdom of God. Second promise. God will swallow up death forever. The Apostle Paul quotes this line in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-57. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to consider kingdom mountain in the same ballpark as he uses Isaiah here. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here's the quote from Isaiah that he pulls in. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the picture. God is describing that those who belong to me, the power of death over our flesh is going to be broken. There is no reason to fear physical death for those who come to the mountain of God. We are going to be held in justification before God when He comes in judgment. We are the ones who have a glorious hope is what Isaiah is looking out toward. Why would we want to be part of the wasted city where atonement is certainly death for sins? When those who belong to the mountain, the kingdom of God, there is certainty of Change, Death no longer holding its power over us. Listen to verse 8. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Remember that in the New Testament? Revelation chapter 21 verse 9. Looking out again to that glorious hope. This is what is promised to us because the Messiah reigns, because the Messiah has executed his rule over the earth, over all the nations and all the people. Chapter 25 tells us he also has power over death. He has the power over death such that he can wipe away tears from our eyes, that there is nothing to fear in terms of physical death. And that's why verse 9 becomes the cry of every single follower of Jesus. Look at verse 9. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. We waited, and God brought the salvation. 
Here he describes the people are going to wait confidently for the Lord to accomplish these things. Judgment on the earth is certain, but we wait for God to accomplish these final acts that we are going to be with him. And God wanted to use a glorious image that being with him is like feasting. The ultimate satisfaction, all that our soul could possibly desire, is found in being in the presence of God. And then he gives the second thought. And every tear is wiped away. Where there is no more death. Where there is no more pain. Where there is no more suffering. And that brings in why Paul could identify with Isaiah and say the suffering of this present age is nothing when we think about the glory that's to be revealed. It is nothing when we think about the coming redemption of our bodies. The coming time when we get to gloriously be with God. And what He is doing then is calling for our patience. That's what verse 9 says. We have waited for Him. Creation is described as eagerly waiting. Romans chapter 8 verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves are waiting eagerly for this adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation is eagerly waiting. The creation wants to see this happen for each and every one of us. To no longer be defiled by sin, but to be able to rest in the hope that is to come. The redemption of our bodies. A glorious place and home with God. And Isaiah has just simply pictured this. Have we stopped waiting for the glory to be revealed and gone back to the wasted city of the world? Have we gone back to futility? Have we gone back to looking for our hope, our joy, our satisfaction, and our meaning in the ways of this empty world? The ways of an empty world that will not bring you joy of satisfaction and brings the guarantee of judgment. The Messiah has risen from the dead, is seated at the right hand of God, and all enemies are being put under His feet. Why would we identify with the enemies when we can put our hope in feasting with God and having the redemption of our bodies overcoming death just as Jesus overcame death. I want to do 26, 27, and 28. Too bad. No time. He keeps going. He keeps singing songs and pictures in these next three chapters. We're going to go through them. Of a glorious hope that the people of God have. Will you put your hope in the right place? Will you wait eagerly for the redemption that is to come? Will you wait longingly for the adoption as being children of God? Will you look forward to that day where we will be set free from this physical mortal body and be changed to the immortal glorious bodies that He has prepared for us? That's the hope we have in Christ. Isaiah, way back there, telescoping way out there, is saying... That is why we will sing words, O Lord, You are my God. 
I will praise you and I will trust in you because I am waiting to be with him forever. Turn away from the wasted city. Turn away from this world. Uh, I want to impress us upon that. There is no hope in this world. There is no satisfaction in this world. Everything that we pursue in this life that is not for the glory of God and the extension of His kingdom is all futile and waste. It is all going to be burned up. It is all to naught. We must turn our attention away from this life. Listen to the words from chapter 13 through 24 about this is futility. Judgment is coming. And see that He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to call Him His God. He wants you to have your satisfaction in Him. He wants you to hunger and thirst for Him. And He promises He will meet that thirst. He will meet that spiritual need of yours. He'll give you the living water that you so earnestly desire. Turn away from this life. Turn away from the sin. Turn away from the emptiness. Passionately pursue the Lord who wants to give you all things. You ready to do that? Repent from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins if you haven't done it. And if you haven't been living right, repent and pray to God to die before it's too late. And dedicate your life to the mountain of the Lord, to the kingdom of God, to His glorious throne. Yield to the great King who wants to give you all things. Won't you come while we stand in the words